Madam, please sit down. This matter is being represented by the district attorney. Norman was not convicted of murder. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Don't you realize they're going to release a homicidal well, maniac? I ask you to sit down, Mrs. Loomis. It's all too obvious. Our courts protect the criminals, not their victims. Norman Bates is judged, restored to sanity, and is ordered released forthwith. It's 22 years later, and Norman Bates is coming home. I own a motel not too far from here, and you'd be welcome to spend the night in one of the empty rooms if you'd like. Good night, Mary. And he's back in business. Who is this? My mother is dead. I'm telling you, there was a note on that wheel from my dead mother. Norman, it couldn't be your mother. It had to be someone else. I trust her. She would never do anything to hurt me. She'll kill you. I know she will. No, I. I won't do that. You can't make me kill her. Twenty-two years later, Norman Bates is home. Psycho. Two. It's starting again. this episode of Adam's Corner, we welcome to the show Ray Morton, who has previously been a guest on Movie Geeks United with me many times, and uh, we've done many retrospectives on films that were celebrating anniversaries, and continuing with that tradition, that's what we're going to be doing on this episode with the uh, uh, 40th anniversary celebration of Psycho 2, directed by Richard Franklin, and it's hard to believe that this film was released uh, 40 years ago in June of 1983. First, I'll say that if you haven't read any of Ray's books, I would highly recommend you getting them or looking them up. There's so many of them. Uh, he's, there's great books on the making of the King Kong films. Uh, there's a uh, great book on the making of Close Encounters and A Hard Day's Night and so many others. Uh, just go to where you normally find books and look up Ray Morton and you'll find some great reading material if you are a serious film fan. So I just wanted to give you a little shout out there. And so we'll get right into this uh, with the genesis of Psycho 2. This was a sequel 22 years after the original film's release. And that was uh, that's something that seems to happen every time we turn around these days, but back then it was kind of an anomaly, I believe. So uh, I'll let you tell us a little bit about it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's well, first of all, congratulations on the new show. And um, thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate that. Oh, always glad to have you on. We, you're just always so knowledgeable, a fount of knowledge, and uh, always enjoy our conversations. And I just hated to see them go by the wayside. So those of you who religiously followed me over at Movie Geeks United and enjoyed these conversations. We, we're going to continue doing them, and we might even step up the pace and do them a little bit more often. Who knows? That sounds good to me. <laughs> um, so Origins of Psycho 2, kind of, kind of interesting because it comes from a, a bunch of different threads. Uh, the first one was that uh, Psycho was actually a Paramount picture, and um, Hitchcock at that time did many of those great 1950s films of his, like To Catch a Thief and Rear Window and all that at Paramount. And um, Paramount refused to finance Psycho because they thought it was um, certainly not what people wanted from Hitchcock and, uh, and that um, he was sort of lowering himself by doing a shocker as opposed to one of his, you know, more elegant thrillers, globe-trotting thrillers that he was doing at the time. Um, so he – actually, I, I made a mistake there. They did finance it, but they were not enthusiastic about it. 
Um, and Hitchcock decided they were only approved a, a minor budget for it. So he decided to make Psycho with uh, the crew from his television series, which was being done. And this gets a little convoluted, but uh, Hitchcock was represented by the agency MCA, which was the most powerful agency in the business at that time, which was run by Lou Wasserman. And MCA in the late 50s had bought um, Universal Studios, the physical studio from Universal Pictures, which at that time was called Universal International. And they renamed it Review Studios. So um, Hitchcock decided to, that's where Hitchcock's television show was shot. So he decided to use the crew from his television show and to use Universal Studios, Review Studios, as the location for the movie as opposed to Paramount. So Psycho was made on the back lot at, at what was once and later became again Universal. And that's where the Psycho house was built. Um, and the movie came out. It was released by Paramount. But in the early 60s, uh, Lou Wasserman, uh, MCA, then bought Universal Pictures as well. So they bought the studio first, then they bought the company. And when the, when MCA owned the entire thing, Lou Wasserman lured Hitchcock over from Paramount to, and set him up there. And all of Hitchcock's last uh, decade or so of movies was made at Universal. Um, and in the process, they worked out some deal. Hitchcock had actually owned uh, the rights after a certain period of time to all of those films he made at Paramount in the 50s, including Psycho. So he owned uh, To Catch a Thief and Vertigo, Rear Window, and so on. And, and uh, Lou Wasserman made a deal with Hitchcock. They bought the rights to his movies and in, uh, in turn gave him stock in MCA. So he actually was after Wasserman and um, and the head of you know the the, the board of, of Universal. Hitchcock owned more MCA stock than any other person outside of the board. Um, so in the process, Universal acquired the rights to Psycho, and they didn't do anything with it. Uh, all of this happened in the early '60s. But in the early 80s, there was a company called Oak Industries, and sometimes you see it uh, referred to as Oak Media and a few other titles. And they were a manufacturer of things that had nothing to do with the movie business. But somehow in the late 70s and early 80s, they became involved in this in this uh, company, in this project called On TV, O-N and then TV. And it was cable without cable it was over the air subscription television and um and what they what the plan was is you would buy a converter box like you like a cable like the early cable boxes but these the on tv stations were going to be over the uhf channels on your television and one of the channels would be an on tv channel They'd make an arrangement with whoever owned that station, and they would broadcast a scrambled signal that then you would buy this or rent this decoder box that would allow you then to see the, the picture. So that was like they, they called it subscription television, and that came about kind of at the same time HBO and cable television were getting started. And eventually cable, of course, took over that market, um, and on TV didn't last, and it, it basically went away by the mid-'80s. But at the time, um, in the early-'80s, when, when Oak Industries was getting this plan together, one of their ideas to attract subscribers was they were going to do um, four original made-for on-TV movies, and they made a deal with Universal to produce four movies for them. And one of them... Universal at that time had no shame in, in rifling through any of its uh, catalog. You know, this was the studio who did, you know, a bunch of air, airplane movies and, you know, and the nude bomb and all sorts of other kinds of things that rifed on their history. Um, and so somewhere in there, the idea came to do a sequel to Psycho. And Alfred Hitchcock died in 1980. I don't think Universal ever would have even permitted the idea uh, while he was still alive, but by then he had passed away. So this idea came up, let's do a sequel to Psycho. Uh, we'll call it Psycho 2, and it'll be an original Oak Industries on TV uh, movie. And um, 
to make it, they obviously were going to do it really cheap. And and I don't think anyone had a stake in it necessarily being good. They just wanted something exploitative, you know, a title they could exploit and attract publicity. So they hired a guy named Richard Franklin to develop the project. And Richard Franklin was an Australian uh, film director. Uh, he had actually come to the United States in the 60s to go to USC film school and he was there at the same time that like Randall Kleiser and George Lucas and John Carpenter, that whole um, that whole gang of original film school filmmakers. Richard Franklin was one of those those students after um, after USC. He went to uh, back to Australia and directed a couple of films. He started in softcore porn, but then eventually made um, made a film called Road Games which was kind of a, uh, a version of rear, a rear window on the, on the highways of Australia. And that starred Jamie Lee Curtis. And it was the most expensive Australian film made at the time. And then also ended up becoming one of the highest grossing Australian films of all time. It was a really nifty little thriller, very Hitchcockian in style. Um, and that's the other thing about Richard Franklin. He was a giant Alfred Hitchcock fan and it actually invited Hitchcock to come to USC to address a class when Franklin was a student there. They were going to show Rope, and he, he called Hitchcock, and Hitchcock actually agreed and came down to do uh, um, uh, like an all-day seminar with the students, and Richard Franklin was responsible for that. And then they stayed uh, friendly with each other after. So he would, they Universal approached Franklin to do this film, I, I suppose knowing uh, what a huge Hitchcock fan he was and really what a Hitchcock student and scholar he was. And then uh, and Franklin felt that he knew it was an exploitation kind of project, but he wanted to make a better film than that. And he ended up hooking up with a writer named Tom Holland. And that's how the project got rolling. Very interesting trajectory, I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And um, I, I agree with you. I don't think that it would have gotten made had Hitchcock still been alive at the time of its production or at the time of its, in the idea came to fruition. Or yes. Whatever. I don't even think it would have went before the cameras, long story short. But uh, yeah, they did say, I don't know if this is true or not, that Patricia Hitchcock gave her blessing to the film. Uh, the Hilton Green, who was the assistant director of the original Psycho, supposedly was asked if he wanted to produce and, he was afraid that Hitchcock may not have approved of the sequels to his films, and he called her supposedly and asked, and she gave the blessing. I, I'm here. I don't know if that's hearsay or you never can tell. No, I, I have heard that. Um, as, as much as any of these things are true, I suppose it was. I imagine they had to make some sort of deal with the Hitchcock estate. I mean, even though Universal owned it, you know, lock, stock and barrel, I'm sure there was some percentage thing or whatever that had to be worked out. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah. And I imagine Richard Franklin doing it probably allowed Patricia to give her okay, because I think she figured she would probably have understood that if anyone was going to treat it respectfully, it was going to be Richard Franklin. Right. That's true. And of course, Alma Hitchcock, Hitchcock's uh, widow had passed away in 82, I believe it was. So she wasn't right. around either. Uh, right. So, uh, yes. And she was closely involved with most of most, if not all of his productions. So oh, she yeah, might have she... had something to say about it, too, if she were alive. <laughs> <laughs> I, I imagine so. Um, <laughs> and at the same time, uh, another piece of it, though not as integral as it probably originally sounds, Robert Block, who wrote the original novel of Psycho, mm -hmm. had written a novel called Psycho 2, which came out in 82. And and it's it doesn't have anything to do with the movie that came out. Norman Bates is in it, but he I think he gets killed off like in the first couple of chapters. Yeah, he does. And it, I was gonna say yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's a it's like kind of it was meant as kind of a poison pill to to the slasher genre and all the things that were happening back then that, that Block did not approve of. But I, I do think that probably also played a part because the novel came out and it got, you know, a fair amount of publicity. And I think it got the idea of Psycho 2 floating around in people's heads. 
But I, I think as soon as the, the anyone involved read the novel, they were like, well, we're, we're, this isn't going to be the Psycho 2 that we're going to do. Um, and and I know uh, Richard Franklin had no interest in adapting that book. So he really wanted to make it an original. And he uh, my understanding is he pretty much worked out the, the basic approach that he wanted. And then he went looking for a writer that would help him bring it to life. And that's when he met up with Tom Holland, who later went on to write and direct um, Fright Night, which was sort of a, a 1980s horror classic. And then he later uh, co-wrote and directed the first Child's Play movie. Um, at that point, he had been an actor since the late 60s. He had done a bunch of soaps and a few parts in films um, and he had he had decided in the late 70s to transition to becoming a screenwriter. And um, he wrote a low budget horror film that came out, I believe, 80, 81 called The Beast Within. Yes, that's correct. Uh, yeah. And I, I guess and he wrote a, um, a spec script, I believe, was called The Crystal Tower, I think was the title of it. And, and that was a very well-regarded spec script, and that brought him to Richard Franklin's attention. And I guess whatever the meeting they had was went very well, and so Tom Holland and Richard Franklin started writing the script for what would become Psycho 2. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that totally makes sense. I, I know we didn't get The Beast Within in my hometown until the – I think it was like uh, around February, March of 82, so – and things mm. tended to be a little bit slower getting to my hometown. So probably late 81. You're probably right about that. Yeah. Uh, and I know he had written, pinned up two other films, Class of 1984, which is a uh, somewhat right. pleasure of mine. I, I think that's a pretty effective little film uh, starring a very young Michael J. Fox, I might That's add. correct. And yeah, it's, yeah. It's kind of a reworking of the basic plot of the Blackboard Jungle where the uh, the kids are – you know, terrorizing the teachers, but it's it's a really really effective piece of work, and I know Roger Ebert gave it four out of four stars, I think. <laughs> oh wow, wow! Yeah, he loved 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 it, and I, I that was you know occasionally he would really come out of left field with some of his reviews, and it's like you really thought that much of that, but I really enjoyed it too. So, and then there's a TV movie he did too called The Initiation of Sarah, which of Sarah, right? Yeah, yes. and I and it's a Carrie ripoff, but. It, pretty effective one for a television film it's it's a lot of fun too and that one kind of kind of got a little, little bit of notice because uh, morgan fairchild is in the film and there's a scene where she's pushed into a fountain and she gets up out of the fountain and she's her shirt is wet and the nipples are protruding uh, and so for <laughs> yes, television and, and it's they they show it for a brief second and then they cut back and they and then they're showing her from the neck up it's funny yes. how they work it in there but it was it, it got by the censors <laughs> And it was totally, you know, so it's, and that's, believe it or not, out on a Blu-ray from Arrow, but it's, it's really, uh, it's a pretty oh, decent little, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that film is infamous too, because back in those days, they would often release, um, uh, American TV movies overseas as right. features. And what was famous about that film is they shot a whole bunch of, uh, nude footage to splice in. So I don't know if the, <laughs> if the Blu-ray has both versions. <laughs> But uh, not not just Morgan Fairchild in a wet T-shirt, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't think it. I think it's just the American version that's on there. But it's uh, but like I said, a decent. It was definitely his first. It was his first script, and it's definitely not a bad way to get your career started as a screenwriter when you're an actor trying to uh, make a, a tr transition into a different uh, type of um, absolutely area of yeah. filmmaking. So anyway, uh, so I guess we can get into the casting, and of course. Uh, I guess the main thing that we need to talk about is Anthony Perkins, who turning down the offer to reprise the role, I believe, uh, when he read the script, uh, he felt differently. Uh, yeah, Perkins could be notoriously prickly, I think, uh, from people that have worked with him. Yes. I'm really friendly with the uh, female lead of Fear Strikes Out. She lives not far from me, actually, and so she had some really interesting stories mm. Uh, and uh, she's up in her 90s now, so she can she can tell you all the Anthony Perkins stories. She, she was there. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, well, but anyway, I'll get, let you tell us about that. Yeah, no, I mean, a wonderful actor and a famously very troubled man. A uh, lot of lot of conflict within himself, and so hearing that he could be prickly 
doesn't seem like a surprise to me. But, you know, he had done Psycho and it was, you know, Psycho is always known. Um, the surprise being that they hired a bona fide movie star, uh, Janet Lee, and kill her off in the first act. And that was, you know, that's always talked about as the big surprising shock of that movie. But the other shock of the movie at the time it came out was Anthony Perkins was known as a young romantic lead and and was very successful as a young heartthrob. He had lots of female fans. I think he even had a, a record he put out at he one point. He did. Moonlight yeah. Swim, a top there you, single. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. And and so he was he had quite a career. So one of the shocks of Psycho was they hired this wholesome romantic comedy lead guy and he turns out to be the psychotic killer. So that was the other big shock. The problem is, and, and Perkins obviously is terrific in the movie, but it totally changed the trajectory of his career because once he played Norman, uh, it was very hard for people to see him as the young romantic lead anymore, um, either in comedy or drama. And so he slowly got reduced to either starring roles in kind of more low-budget thriller shocker material or only supporting roles, um, you know, in, in more major movies where at a certain point he had been the star of those. So uh, for him, it was a real mixed blessing because obviously it's going to be the role he's most remembered for and he's wonderful in the movie, but it kind of really took his career in a direction that he was not happy with. So when they first approached him, because I, I believe the sequence of events were when someone came up with the idea, let's do Psycho 2, of course, well, let's find out if Tony Perkins is going to be interested in doing it, uh, because, you know, what would happen if he wasn't, you know, it wouldn't have the same value. So he was approached and pretty much said, absolutely not. I uh, didn't. He just did not want to revisit that that role because he just felt it would typecast him even further. Um, and, and I think it was Richard Franklin and Tom Holland's idea that we have to make this script so good that, uh, that he'll want to do it. Meanwhile, other names were floated. The most famous one that you hear quoted is, uh, that Christopher Walken was being considered. But I, I feel like that tends to get reported as Christopher Walken was offered the role um, I have no doubt that the people involved thought about him playing Norman Bates. I don't know whether it was ever actually offered to him because at that point in time, he was still, there was still a movement to make him a leading man in mainstream features um, that began with his success, obviously, in, in, um, in Deer Hunter and then in even Heaven's Gate. He's quite good and even though the film itself is, is problematic. Um, and he was starring in things at that point, Dead Zone and The Dogs of War. So I don't really know if he would have considered doing a, you know, a low budget TV movie. Um, but I know he's, his name is the one that comes up the most. But uh, uh, Franklin and Holland finished their script and it got it to Perkins and he became interested in it because it is a very good script. And it really it, it did a really interesting thing that I don't know that I hear talked about so much um, with Psycho 2, but Norman is the villain of Psycho. Uh, he's a sympathetic villain, but he's the villain. He's the hero of Psycho 2. The movie is on his side. It's about him, and, and it is about his tragedy, and you feel a lot of sympathy for him all through the movie. So I do think that attracted uh, Tony Perkins' attention, and he tentatively agreed to do it. And as soon as he tentatively agreed to do it and the, the announcement went out, people got very excited and Universal realized that um, they were not going to make it a TV movie at that point. They were going to make it a theatrical release. And when that happened, that was the end of Oak Industries. They still get a credit on the movie. But other than being there in the beginning of the development, they ultimately had nothing to do with it. Yeah. Yeah, and I remembered, and it's, I'm so glad you brought that up about Oak Industries because I remember seeing in the credits, you know, a Universal yeah. Oak picture, and I always right. wanted to, <laughs> about the story yeah. behind that. So uh, that's that's really interesting to 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 get the uh, the the behind the uh, scene story, as it were, about that. So yeah, so we'll get into the um, 
the other casting, of course, uh, Vera Miles, they were able to get her yes. and Vince to come back as Lila Loomis from the original film, and I thought that was a, a really uh, smart piece of casting. And they tried to get John Gavin back, I believe, but, uh, you know, he was working he was the Ronald Reagan. Yes, he was <laughs> ambassador to Mexico at that point. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't think he was going to take time out. Yeah. And and they do a clever thing with Vera Miles, too, because she's the sort of the nominal heroine of Psycho. I mean, mm -hmm. originally it's Janet Lee, but she sort of fills in. And then they turn her, I'm assuming we're not giving away too many spoilers here, um, she turns into one of the main villains of Psycho 2. Mm -hmm. So kind of nice role reversal for both of them. Yes, true. And she has a terrific death scene, I might add, too. <laughs> she, she, she sure does. I, I still remember it all these years later. Yeah. It's like, oh, my Lord. That was a, uh, that was a memorable one. They were, if yeah. nothing else, they were uh, creative with the death scenes in this film, for sure. That was one I remember... I remember running my tongue across the roof of my mouth after that scene a lot because <laughs> I think I was so freaked out by it. <laughs> so. Yes, yes, yes. I, uh, I, I totally agree. And now I think originally they were trying to convince Jamie Lee Curtis to portray Lila's yes. daughter. Now this may, again, be just hearsay, but uh, that would have been interesting to cast her as Lila's daughter uh, you know, because of the connection that her mother had to the original film. So, uh, that sure. and something. she, she'd actually worked with Richard Franklin. She was the star That's of road right. games. Yes. So I, I actually have no doubt she was approached, but, um, but at that, that was that point where she was trying to transition away from, uh, horror films because mm -hmm. she'd obviously made her name doing them. And that was the same year that uh, she did Trading Places yes. where she kind of, yeah, she jumped into, you know, mainstream studio movies. And I don't, I don't think she was interested in going back to, to horror films at that point. Um, so they ended up with Meg Tilly. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess we can jump into the fact that at some point fairly early in the production, uh, she ran afoul of Anthony Perkins. Yes. Uh, yeah, the, the story that is told is that everybody was fussing over Perkins and making a big deal of it because obviously he was the star of the first film and supposedly she was unaware of the first film um, <laughs> and, and therefore unaware and apparently she was unaware of uh, movies in general. So she didn't really understand why there was all this fuss being made about him and said something like, why is Tony getting all this attention? And apparently that offended Perkins quite a bit. Um, and he spent a fair amount of time trying to get her fired after that. Uh, now, I suspect that story probably has some truth to it, but I also had the feeling that... Um, I, I and and perhaps the the co-star of Fear Strikes Out would have more stories about this. I guess he uh, Perkins was very particular in what he was getting from his co-stars, and he just felt he wasn't getting what he wanted from Meg Tilly. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that probably added into it too. But Richard Franklin uh, did not want to lose Meg Tilly, and of course, if you've seen the film, I I remember that was the movie that brought her to everybody's attention. Uh, she and she had quite a good career going through a fair part of the 80s. But that was certainly the first time I remember seeing her. I know she did other things, but she's quite good in the film. But uh, Tony just didn't like her. So they they didn't get along very well through the shooting of the movie. Yeah, I've heard Tom Holland say that in interviews. Uh, he's he's he has uh, confirmed that. Uh, yeah, there was bad blood there. So, yeah, that's not. We're not telling tales out of school. Folks. Yeah. And, and she she gave a quote years later. She said that it was the most unhappy movie making experience of her career. Mm. I guess she also did not get along very well with Richard Franklin, who, from accounts I've heard, could be quite tempestuous as well. So I guess mm -hmm. between between Tony Perkins not liking her and Richard Franklin being kind of a tough guy to deal with, she she said it was her least favorite movie-making experience. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, he's probably going to side with his leading man, you know, having yeah. been able to get him to, uh, uh, to return to that role. I mean, you know, he certainly didn't want to do anything to rub him the wrong way. So Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so we'll get into the actual nuts and bolts of the production 
and the principal photography of Psycho 2 taking place at Universal Studios, of course. Yes. Universal City uh, on Soundstage 24 from June the 30th to August the 13th, 1982. That's what I have anyway. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so you can tell us a little bit about what they did in, in terms of getting the the uh, the house back and the uh, the, the motel and all that. Uh, we'll, we'll yeah. Tell a little bit about well, that. The- the the house, the actual uh, Bates house, was on the Universal backlot, um, and I forget what film it was originally created for. I believe it was some kind of either period drama or a western, you know, many years before. But it had been used in Psycho, and it had stayed on the lot, and it was part of the Universal tour, uh, so you could always see it. But at the time they were planning to make Psycho two where it was located was kind of right in the middle of where all the tours were going and everything. So the the whole thing was moved to a different location on the universal backlot. So it never left the backlot, but where you see it today on the tour is not where it was when Hitchcock used it. And, and I was, I had fun. One of my first times going to universal uh, for business, um, I, I roamed around the backlot and the house was um, at that time, just a facade there was the, the basically the view you are familiar with from psycho where you see the front of the house and i guess it would be the right side of the house um that was all that there was there was no left side there was no back of the house it was it was all on scaffolding um and when what was funny is when they weren't using it for filming you know for the tour they had a mrs bates in a rocking chair up in the window but you you, sh- you had to go up the, the uh, scaffolding to, to get her um, and so they had relocated the house, which wasn't that difficult because it really was just, you know, a facade on scaffolding, uh, to a new spot. And they, you know, they redressed that, the little hill to make it look like what it looked like in Psycho. And the, the motel itself, in the original film, they had built the whole hotel, the whole motel. In this one, they only built, I think it was either one or two cabins. And the rest of the motel, which you actually only really see in one uh, long shot when uh, when Norman is driven home after he gets out of prison, um, is a matte painting by Albert Whitlock, who was Universal Special Effects uh, head of their uh, visual effects at the time. And there's a whole countryside because the motel is obviously supposed to be located uh, very far off the beaten path somewhere in, in the middle of California. And the Universal lot, if you go too far past the actual house, you see a big backdrop for a tank. So, like, they, they, they were, you aren't going to get the desolate look. So Albert Whitlock painted in, um, painted in the horizon, and he painted in the rest of the motel. He also did a fair amount of other um, optical work and, and matte work on the film. Um, it has a fair amount of, of paintings and things in it, including a couple of views from the top of the house, um, but yeah, so that was all put together when they made psycho, there was actually no, uh, the only part of the house that they ever built for psycho, the interior was the front entryway and the staircase. Um, because, uh, if you, that's where famously the, you know, the detective was killed. They also built the basement. That was a separate set. Um, but the, the rest of the house was not actually a full set. So when it came time to do Psycho 2, a lot takes place in the house. So they built a full interior on the stage uh, at Universal, and um, and they found a lot of the old uh, pieces of set dressing that they had used in Psycho. Uh, so like some of the statues and things in the entranceway are original. Um, some of the, the the handrails and things are. If you look closely at at Psycho 2. Um, the interior is clearly on a stage because anytime you see someone come to the front door, uh, they'll do long shots running up on the house on the back lot. But there's a painted backdrop behind them of people when they actually come to the front door. So all of that was done on a stage. Um, and yeah, and it was a pretty quick shoot. They never really left the back lot. They, the opening has an establishing shot at a real courthouse there's a courthouse at the end that is uh, famously the To Kill a Mockingbird courthouse on the back lot of Universal, mm-hmm. uh, where, where Back to the Future was done and a bunch of other things. 
Um, and the diner set was also set up on the back lot. So they never really went on location anywhere. And the swamp was also that was part of the back lot as well. That was the swamp that they filmed the, those scenes in Psycho in as well. Uh, so, yeah, so they um, they kind of recreated and augmented and added, uh, but they tried to make it as authentic as they possibly could. And then and then they got filming, you know, and, and I said oh, it's a fairly quick shoot. My understanding is fairly uneventful, except for the fact that Tony Perkins did not care for Meg Tilly. That was a problem. Um, the other thing, the other difference, and they kind of had to agree to this, was um, that was kind of the height of the first wave of the slasher movies. Mm-hmm. And one thing Universal insisted on is they had to have a couple of slasher killings. So, of course, what's notable about Psycho 2 is it is much more um, graphic in its violence than the original Psycho, which was all about suggestion. Uh, in this one, we have people getting stabbed through the mouth. We have teenagers having sex and getting killed. Um, I think was Tom Holland referred to it as the dead teenager phase of, of filmmaking, <laughs> I believe. Um, you know, so you had and and uh, you had a bunch of other. You had uh, uh, Dennis Franz being killed in a fairly graphic way. So the violence quotient and the blood quotient was um, definitely amped up for that film. Yeah, yeah, it certainly was, and it so that yeah that that is the only thing that maybe uh, places it squarely in its time frame. I guess you would say maybe dates it a little bit is the uh, the inclusion of all the the graphic violence that does a, appear there. But and there were a few critics who took uh, uh, took umbrage with that, but yeah, uh, generally speaking, I think most people just went with it uh, as it were and just. Figured that was just part of part of the culture at the time. So, anyway. oh, oh yeah, yeah. They did a recreation. Um, uh, Franklin, of course, was going to do this. They did a recreation, um, a little bit of the shower scene. Uh, Meg Tilly takes a shower at a certain point, and uh, and and Franklin repeats a lot of the same camera setups to get you get you creeped out and worried something terrible is going to happen to Meg Tilly. Um, and nothing does in the film except. Uh, Obviously, some they they brought in a body double because they had to put in some nudity because it was the early '80s. So, for those of you who are curious, that's not Meg Tilly; that's a body <laughs> double. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, and famously, um, there's a shot when they first enter Mother's bedroom for the first time, where if you look carefully, one of the shadows on the wall is Hitchcock. Uh, it's in, it's the shape of the famous Hitchcock silhouette, yeah. and that was because Richard Franklin wanted Hitch to have his uh, have his cameo in Psycho 2, so he does. And Franklin has a cameo in Psycho 2 as well. He's playing a video game in the diner when uh, Anthony Perkins comes in. Um, so they they got to have fun with that kind of stuff. Franklin did a really great job of working out a lot of the the suspense and the murder sequences. Um, the plot is, of course, super twisty. So there's a certain point where you're really not sure what's going on, but it's it, it always keeps you on the edge of your seat. So he did a very, very good job. I think the script is excellent. And, and I think Franklin did a terrific job of executing the script. It, it just turned out very, very well. Yeah, I think so. Very, very much so. Yeah. Tom Holland actually gets a, a, a small part, too, as Deputy Norris. That's true. Yeah, he actually he gets more screen time than uh, Richard Franklin does because Norris is in a few shots. But uh, yeah, apparently Fairville doesn't have the sharpest police department on on record. But uh, <laughs> but that's OK. And yeah. um, they they did a fair number of uh, pretty decent optical effects. Uh, you know, they're, they're again, a lot of matte paintings. And there's a wonderful shot at the end of the movie where Norman comes out and is standing in front of the house and you see clouds going overhead as, as a storm rolls in oh, yeah, and it's it, yeah it's all in brilliant color and that's all albert whitlock's work um dean cundy was the dp he was uh john carpenter's dp on uh halloween and several other of of, of carpenter's films um so he brought a real nice look to it this obviously psycho was in in black and white psycho 2 is in color but i think cundy did a great job of giving the color photography enough of a gothic look that it feels of a piece, even though, even though the color scheme is quite different, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He, he does a terrific job. And, and I'm surprised that 
considering the budget was around five million dollars for this mm. film, I I'm surprised they were able to get the uh, uh, Dean Coonty to do it because his career was on the up and up, and just two years later he was doing Back to the Future. So uh, that's the yeah, that, yeah. The fact that they were, were able to uh, retain his services, as it were, uh, for this film uh, is uh, is quite a coup. Um, Osgood Perkins, the, uh, the yeah. son of Anthony Perkins, um, yes. he plays the young Norman in a brief scene that we see at the beginning of the film. That's also worth noting, I think, and very mm-hmm. effectively done, I think. Yep, yep, yeah, he's, he's reflected in the doorknob, which is very cool. <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's a neat little a neat little moment, I think. Yeah, and we have the returning voice of Virginia Gregg, who did the voice yeah. of... Uh, uh, mother in the original film and returns for this one as well. So, yes, I she she actually gives the last line of the movie, which is one of my favorite lines uh, of of like great movie dialogue, where she tells him to go down and open the motel. Says, "What are we supposed to live on? Hope." It's like, oh my god, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. it's great. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, uh, and so the uh, the film was edited by uh, Andrew London. I'm trying to see what other credits he has, uh, but yeah, he did Outbreak and Rambo Three, and uh, those are a few of his. But uh, seems like this might have been his his uh, high mark. Uh, FX yeah, well, too. I, I see you yeah, with Richard Franklin again. So exactly, yeah, and, and Jerry Mike. Goldsmith did the music, which was a wonderful coup at that time. Um, and I think was smart enough to go nowhere near Bernard Herrmann's score for the right. original. I think it was a great choice, you know. I'm glad you brought that up. That is a terrific score, I think. And it has uh, some really melodic, tender uh, cues that are used there, kind of romantic in a way, uh, as Goldsmith could do from time to time. Uh, thankfully, a couple of years ago, because you know, the uh, soundtrack album issued on MCA was not the complete score. There were a lot of cues missing and thankfully, that was rectified a couple of years ago with a limited edition CD soundtrack release that has the complete score. So if anybody uh, has ever wanted, you might be able to get that used. I think it's out of print now, but it's really quite fantastic. I have it, and it's uh, quite quite good. Yeah, yeah. No, it's one of his... He always did an interesting thing in some of these movies where he would go gentle, in a movie that is basically a horror film or certainly a thriller and he would go gentle and play against it and i i think it's very very effective in in psycho 2 i i i sort of suspect there like once anthony perkins got on board and i think richard franklin's enthusiasm and i i also think the quality of the script I, I think that's why you see so many big names attached i think people wanted to be associated with it because I think they realized it was going to be a decent film and a good, um, you know, a good, not necessarily a tribute to Psycho, but sort of a, a very respectful and effective successor. I, I think had it gone uh, to the low-budget TV movie route, I don't think you would have seen that quality of, of people involved in it, you know. But right. I think he, I think they figured out that they might have had a good thing there, so... Yeah, that's true. That's that's very true. Mm-hmm. Also, um, make mention of production design by John Corso, who worked uh, a lot with John Hughes with Sixteen Candles and Breakfast Club, Weird Science, Pretty in Pink, and all those. That's uh, right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He was Oscar nominated for Coal Miner's Daughter, I believe, as well. So. There you go. Okay. So, okay. Some interesting yeah. trivia there. So <laughs> yeah. So. Once the film was completed and scored and all that and was released, uh, I believe it was June the 4th of 1983. I believe that's when it was uh, when when it was issued. June 3rd, sorry, June 3rd. And it, okay. Uh, earned eight million dollars in its opening weekend. Number two, right behind Return of the Jedi. Who would have thunk it? <laughs> <laughs> that's great, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's pretty amazing when you think about it. Um, that the sequel to a uh, film that where the original was made 22 years ago is uh, is all just just a just right behind Return of the Jedi. Amazing, uh, grossed over 34 million on its budget of five million. So uh, or 23 years later, I keep saying 22. I don't know why. 23. <laughs> well, uh, the 22 is the catch line. It's 22 years yes, later, 22 and Norman years. Bates so is thinking. coming on. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. So. Um, 
anyway um yeah so and like i said it's uh its reputation has actually grown over the years i i think like i said it was generally well received when it originally was released but it's um uh has has grown even more uh, yeah it, it's had it's had a weird trajectory because it, it was well received i mean in general the reviews were good there were some people who just couldn't stomach the idea of making a sequel to psycho uh so so they you know they panned it but i think anyone who actually took a good look at the movie um you know gave it a good review because it is good and and it, and it is respectful it does not sully the reputation of psycho at all like sometimes some of those sequels could do it's actually a fairly logical continuation of of the story if if you go you know in a I mean, there's a funny line in the beginning where they say um, the judge says Norman Bates is judged return to sanity. I don't think that's an actual legal definition, <laughs> but 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 it makes sense. You know, the idea that he would he would actually get his stability back to some degree is plausible. So so you start from a plausible spot and then and then you spin it into a very good and twisty movie. It's not a. Um, gothic film in the sense that i think psycho is where psycho is is really about sort of it's literally an old dark house movie about all of the sort of grotesque people that inhabit it um you know with of course a really good uh, surprise at the end psycho 2 is more of a thriller i think you know it's a movie about its plot twists to a great degree um so it's not exactly in the same genre as Psycho, but it is certainly a, a logical and worthy continuation of it. Um, I was actually one of those snobs when I heard they were making Psycho 2 and when it came out. I didn't go see it when it opened. It took me till August to see it. I saw it at a second run house because I was such a little film snob at the time. Um, and I loved it. I thought it was terrific. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, shame on me, basically. <laughs> Well, you know, sometimes we're we're late to the game. I had the same reaction with uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, as it were. I saw the trailers, <laughs> and it just didn't they didn't appeal to me at all as a fourteen year old. I thought that doesn't yeah. look funny at all. And then when I finally did see it, it's like, oh well, boy, I was way off the mark. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so I'm glad we can be open to it though, because it was uh, you, you got it when something's good, you got to recognize. Yeah, you know? that's right. Yeah, that's right. yeah. Um, so the last shot of the film with Norman standing in front of that house, as we talked about, that was actually used as a Christmas card for various crew members, they say. Yes, then, yeah. Uh, yeah, Universal presented that concept art for the one-sheet film poster, and director Richard Franklin was not pleased with it. And they say oh, it was the editor, yeah. Andrew London, who came up with the idea of using the Christmas card photo as the film poster and came up with that tagline that we all know. <laughs> years the, the, later, Norman Bates is coming home. It's it's so good. It's a, it's one of those great ones, like just like it's safe to go back in the water and sometimes you just nail it, you know, and um, uh, should we talk a little bit about what happened after uh, with oh, Psycho yeah, 3 or yeah, yeah. 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 And just to clarify right quick, the Psycho 2 album is 30 minutes in length and the Entrada CD is 74 minutes in length. That's ah, how much okay. music was missing from the original album. Just it, in case. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. 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 He, the, these wonderful um, restorations of the soundtrack albums. I just love them. I, I try to get those many as I can because mm -hmm. you forget, Oh man, these movies had such good music in them. Um, Something we don't yeah. know, don't get anymore, unfortunately. No, <laughs> well, it's okay. Hans Zimmer can't score everything. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. so yes, let, let's talk about what came after. Yeah, three years later, uh, because of the uh, obvious success of this film, Psycho Three, in July of ni 1986. I was actually there on opening day for that one because this. Were one, you? Okay. Yeah, I was okay. so psyched up after this one. Uh, no pun intended, but I was just really super excited after having seen Psycho 2 multiple times. I said, oh, I can't wait. <laughs> I think I saw it probably in its opening week. I don't think mm -hmm. I was there opening it. But I, again, same thing, very, very enthusiastic after Psycho 2. You know, that again, Psycho 2 is one of those movies. My my brother has a phrase for films is movies that have no right to be good that but are, that are actually great oh, and yeah. we we have a whole bunch of ones that go into that category but um yeah so so 
after that, Universal obviously was interested in doing a Psycho 3, and much like Leonard Nimoy and uh, appearing in Star Trek 3, Anthony Perkins said he would do it if he could direct. I, my understanding is he actually had wanted to direct Psycho 2. That was that was one of his first things was like, well, can I do that? And and they said no on that. But um, he was I think it was a condition of coming back that he could direct Psycho 3. Um, Psycho 3 is an interesting film, like obviously the big plot twist at the end of Psycho 2 is that Norman Bates's mother was not his mother that there was another woman who, who uh, Mrs. Bates' sister who was actually Norman's mother, and that allows the plot to play out um, where mother is dead, but mother is still there. And then, of course, there's the wonderfully horrifying ending of Psycho 2 where <laughs> he slams her on the head with a shovel and kills her, and then she becomes the new mother, basically, as as, as Norman slips back into insanity. Because uh, that where we end up in the movie is Norman is insane and mother is back. Um, so Psycho 3 picks up from there. Um, if you go by sort of the timing of the thing, it's only supposed to be a short time after the end of Psycho 2, uh, a couple of weeks or a couple of months, perhaps. Um, there's an interesting little reference to Meg Tilly's character. Uh, she's seen at one point in Psycho 2 reading the book In the Belly of the Beast, which was a pretty popular bestseller at that time. And you just see a faded copy of it in the grass outside of the house in Psycho 3. Um, oh, we didn't mention one thing. In the ending of Psycho 2, Meg Tilly's character was not supposed to die. There was, there was a, as written, uh, they said she'd gone insane and was now locked up in an insane asylum. But in the, in the editing process, they cut all of that out. So she is killed at the end of Psycho 2. Um, so there's ghosts of her hanging around in Psycho 3, which I thought was interesting given, uh, Anthony not caring for her very much. But, um, yeah, and that was uh, started as a pitch by um, by the writer. And I'm, I'm this is terrible. I'm just suddenly blanked on his name. Charles <laughs> um, Edward Pogue. It is Charles Edward Pogue. The same yeah. summer, I believe, yeah. Yeah, shame Conan on me. I just, fly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was his big one-two punch. He, he yeah. had come up with the original pitch on the fly, and, and he came up with the pitch on Psycho 3, I think the idea, the story idea for Psycho 3 is brilliant. Um, I, I don't know that I think the execution was brilliant, but I, I think that Psycho 2 did the fun thing of taking the very sane Norman and making him insane and bringing back Mother. So we're right back where we were when Psycho started. And what I think Pogue's greatest uh, brainstorm in Psycho 3 was he wanted to cure Norman once and for all, and he wanted to do it by having Norman have a showdown with Mother, which and that is how the film was promoted. Like like the, you know Nor Norman confronts Mother, um, and obviously a lot of it is taking place in his head. Uh, I think the idea of it was brilliant, and I think the original scripted ending, which was Norman is arrested for all the murders he commits during the course of Psycho 3 and is hauled off. And I think the sheriff says something like, you will never get out again. Um, meanwhile, we know he's returned to sanity because he has finally killed a mother in his mind uh, as well as physically. And he says something along long lines of, yeah, but I'll be free. And as written, I think it's just the and the original ending of the film was supposed to be just the, the psycho house receding in the distance as the car drove away. We can get we can get to what happened to that ending. But I, I, I think that the concept was brilliant. I think the execution was a bit flawed. Um, I'm not sure where you stand on it, but that was how I felt. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think you're uh, absolutely right in your uh, assessment, I believe. Yeah, I just don't think that directing was Anthony Perkins' strong suit, although there are some interesting uh, some touches that he does bring to it. It's not completely unsuccessful, I don't think. There, there are a few uh, directorial, directorial flourishes, I would say, from time to time that you think to yourself, well, this is kind of interesting and... Uh, he, he, he does some wonderful stuff. Um, there's scenes where 
uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact sequencing of things, but he's in the hospital room with, uh, with uh, Diana Scarwood and yeah. then, um, and then walks out into, into the, the psycho house. It's all done in one shot. Obviously it's done with, with clever stagecraft, but it's a great kind of way of staging things. He goes, I, the, I, the word that keeps coming to my mind with that film is it's very Rococo. Like everything is a little more, lurid and over the top like franklin directs psycho 2 with a certain amount of reality to it i mean obviously it's a thriller um but he he grounds it in in pretty much in the real world so the over the top stuff kind of kind of grabs your attention everything in psycho 3 is just a bit over the top already and and i think the problem there is that it loses a little bit of of the reality you need to buy into it. It's, it's very Gothic. It's um, again, a, a little bit over the top, almost borderlining on campy sometimes. Yes. And uh, yes. yeah, I think, I think that's a bit of a problem. Everybody acts like um, Jeff Fahey's in the film. It was one of the first films that really brought him to people's attention and he's a good actor, but I don't actually think he's particularly good in the movie. I think he's a, he plays everything a little too one note. Um, and I think that's the directing. I don't think it's the actor. And um, same thing for, with Diana Scarwood. You know, she's she just plays everything a little too heightened. And um, one of the great things in Psycho 2 was uh, Franklin had Tony Perkins play Norman pretty straightforward. And then every once in a while they throw in a weird little quirk like uh that that wonderful bit where he refers to cutlery, you know, <laughs> yes. and, and then when he talks about how he killed his mother and he just makes this kind of weird little head snap, like you know, got rid of her. Um, the problem is he plays the whole performance in Psycho Three that quirky and that lurid. It's kind of a lurid movie. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, I'm I'm uh, quoting my brother, but he's like, there are there are a couple of moments where. Norman actually he kills uh, a young woman and then kisses her her dead corpse and and as my brother said all the things you could guess Norman was really up to but we didn't really want to know in this movie now we know <laughs> so, and, and it, so it, it's a little gross I think that way um, and then it wasn't helped by two things it was radically restructured in in the editing process. And I think to its own detriment, mm -hmm. because it it originally began with focus on Norman and then and then went from there. The way the release cut goes, it starts with the nun character yes. and it takes a long time to get to Norman. And it just it kind of it just it's very clumsy. I think uh, there was some restructuring in the in the climax as well. And then Universal, um, the other piece I think that undermines it to a great degree is that Universal, after the film was done, at that point we were in the really um, sort of the really sleazier phase of the slasher uh, trend, uh, where it was a lot of TNA and a lot of graphic nudity and violence. And they wanted that put into psycho three so they went back and shot a couple of murders they either shot they added the the girl in the phone booth was all new and then they reshot some of the other ones like a girl gets murdered on the toilet at some point oh yeah and, yeah. yeah and it's just it just got a little sleazy and a little low rent um and then the final i think nail in the coffin was um universal wanted a shocker ending and the original ending is written is so wonderful. It's it's just Norman. Norman's getting locked up, but he's he is um, he's free. And then Universal insisted on an ending where Norman's driving away in the police car and he pulls out Mother's arm and gives an evil look at the camera like, oh, I'm still nuts. And I think totally undermined um Charles Pogue's great ending. And so I think it just it just ended up as a bit of a misfire, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting misfire, but yes. Yeah. Uh, and it's far from terrible, I, I will uh, say that, but it's definitely a, a big come down from Psycho 2, uh, yeah. for sure. And uh, and I do like the, uh, appreciate the tragic angle of the romance with the Diana Scarwood character. Yes. Written. Uh, that totally works, uh, you know, because you want 
you know, there's a part of you. I remember as a teenager seeing that in a theater, wanting, you know, something good to come of this for Norman. You want, you're rooting for him, and then this, this thing happens, you know, and yeah. it's tragedy, yeah. and it's like, man, this guy just can't win. <laughs> yeah, can, can I catch a break for Norman? Yeah, you know, yeah. So yeah. you do feel for him, and there is some empathy with his character, uh, and maybe that's because of the script, and not so much uh, because of the direction. So. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yes, there is that. And then we did uh, four years later have a, a Psycho <laughs> yeah. War, the beginning, uh, directed by Mick Garris, and originally, uh, yeah, and it was. Uh, I think Anthony Perkins wanted to direct that one, but they would not let him because of the poor box office performance of the third one, and so he was at odds with Mick Garris right from the get go. I think. Yes. Uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. So that that probably contributed to some of the. The problems therein, although Robert Block returned, the writer from the original Psycho. So no, jo- Joe Stefano. Oh, Joe Stefano. Yes, not Robert. Yeah, Block. yeah. Right. Joe Stefano. Thank you for the yeah. correction. Yes. I, yes. Know, I was thinking of the <laughs> I, novel because we talked about that earlier, and I had that on my mind. So yes. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I have no idea what Robert Block thought of it, but it was. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it was an. It, that was an interesting film for a couple of reasons. The first was it was one of the first of these sequels that suddenly pretends the three or four movies that came before didn't come before um you know which the the halloween series seems to have perfected that they just uh um so yeah it, it really is a direct sequel to psycho and it ignores psycho 2 and psycho 3 it doesn't completely negate them but it just it just skips over them as if they never happened mm-hmm. and and it kind of goes back to where psycho Two began, which is Norman is now out of the hospital and and restored to sanity. Um, although this time he's married, and that you know one of the things Stefano said that he didn't really like all the different plot twists that Psycho two and three threw in. He he felt that the first film had sort of a an elevated dignity to it and was more of a drama, and he felt that the other two were more like you know, thriller horror movies of a lesser kind. So he wanted to have like no like twist, like no Norman had a had a second mother who then, of course, in Psycho 3, we find out she was crazy and Norman's mother was his mother. So it's like it's a lot of back and forth. So he just got rid of all of that. But he had Norman be married. And and with all respect to his criticisms of Psycho 2 and 3, I actually found that much harder to swallow than anything in the other two films because I just Norman Bates might have regained his sanity, but that was not a person who was ever going to form a healthy enough relationship to get married to anybody. Right. And I, I just, I felt it just, I didn't believe it from the get go, which is a problem for the suspension of disbelief, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. 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 Anthony Perkins is great as always uh, in his portrayal, obviously, but uh, yeah, it's just not, um, but again, not a terrible film. Uh, not the no. worst thing I've ever seen. There's some good stuff yeah. there, and I rewatched it a couple of years ago, and I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. E- even though it is flawed, I was surprised how I was thinking. Ah, I bet I'm not re- really going to enjoy because I've gone on this kick. There was a box set of the Psycho films, and I revisited them all, and I thought I'm probably not going to enjoy this <laughs> one. Yeah. And I was surprised how much I did. Uh, enjoy it so well the the thing they do too it certainly wasn't the first prequel movie but it was it, it, it's one of those films that is a sequel and a prequel at the same time mm-hmm. because all of the stuff with anthony perkins is the sequel part and then they do his early years where norman is played by henry thomas which i think was a great um yes, a great idea like uh, i think that worked and olivia hussey played uh, mrs Bates, and she's wonderful she's she's spectacular yes. in it um i you know it's it's okay directed i you know um mick garris is is a talented guy he's a wonderful historian and publicist and podcast host and he's he's written a number of good things and directed some good mm-hmm. things but i don't think he's quite in the same arena as like a richard franklin so it's it's a solid film i don't i don't know that it has any great directorial touches in it but i also suspect probably a lot of his work was just keeping perkins from jumping ship so he probably <laughs> yes. pro- that's probably where most of his energy had to go <laughs> yeah there's probably a good bit of that you're right yes yeah well, this has been interesting uh, revisiting uh, Psycho 2 and uh, going down the uh, 
the trajectory of the sequels as well. It's been uh, so much fun as it usually is when you uh, join me for these talks, and so I appreciate you coming back and and uh, spending some time this time in Adam's Adam's corner. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I like Adam's corner. I I, I will uh, be happy to come back. But thank thank you for having me again. I really appreciate it.